It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Welcome to the big show, everybody. Hope you all had a great weekend. Let me get the chat room open, say hello to everybody. Hey, guys. Marion, you're here. Um, all right, today we are going to do a really interesting show, very educational. I'll try and keep it entertaining. It's called How to Be a Go-To Music Library Composer or subtitled How to Make Music Libraries Love You. Oh, they love you, baby. Um, before I forget, I want to remind you, if you're not a subscriber to this channel already, please hit that red subscribe button. Um, also, if you want to give us a like, if you like what you learned today, give us a thumbs up. You can also click the little bell to get alerts when we go live. Um, all right, I've got a lot of material to cover today, so I'm probably going to go fairly quickly when I read this stuff. Hopefully we can get to some Q&A at the end of the show. Um, I reached out to, oh no, what did I do with my list? <laughs> I had a list of all the people I reached out to, uh, and I seem to have lost it already. Oh well, I'm going to have to do this from memory. No, I can do it from right here. I reached out to several of our, um, whoops, somebody's texting me right now, which is not a good time. Text me, okay. Sorry. Okay, ringer off, buzzer off, vibrator off, whatever. Um, I reached out to some of our high-earning uh, successful taxi members and also uh, reached out to our head screener, Craig Pilo, because he too is a successful library composer. Um, but anyway, I reached out to Keith LeBrant, who many of you know, very, very successful taxi member. Matt Vanderbo, <laughs> Matt Vanderbo who uh, another very successful taxi member. Greg Carosa, yet another successful taxi member. And all these guys um, have great advice all the time. So that's why I reached out to them. Paul Croteau, um, who is, <laughs> I said, please don't send me a book, you guys. And uh Croteau sent me, um, oh, am I getting, there I am. Uh, he sent me not just a book. I asked for a checklist. I didn't want a book. I got an encyclopedia from him. Um, it took me so long to format these and edit them all and everything. So thanks, guys. <laughs> I appreciate that. But there's great information in here. Um, pages and pages from Mr. Croteau. And then Craig Pilo, as mentioned before, who also wrote a book. All right, so how to how to be a go-to music library composer, or affectionately subtitled, how to make music libraries absolutely love you. Let's get right down to it. Yeah, be prepared to take notes. Oh, I want to mention though, for those of you who don't have a pencil or don't have paper or don't have something to type your notes in, we are going to post all 19 pages. Of course, it's in an 18-point font, so I can read it while I'm on air, but we're going to uh, post all of this as an article in the April Taxi Transmitter, the newsletter, not the one that just came out, but the one that will come out uh, in about 28, 29 days from now. So it will be there. Um, okay, ready? 
Most of Taxi's highest earning uh, composers have become go-to composers for a reason that goes beyond just making great music. I know people want to believe it's all about the music, but it's not. Um, their music does make income for both themselves and the libraries that they work with. The reason that they've become go-to composers is that they have their business act together as well, which makes them easier to work with than other composers who don't. Um, and you know, all things being equal, all things being the music. If the music is equal, the libraries will always default to the person um, who has their business act more together. Uh, and by saying business act, I mean that they make it quick and easy for the companies they work with um, uh, because they understand the range of typical production musical, music library deals, what the contracts have in them, uh, and they don't suck a lot of time from the music library executives by asking questions like, why do you get 100% of the publisher share when my college professor told me I should always keep all of my publishing? Hmm college professor didn't know what he or she was speaking of. Uh, they certainly don't understand the production music library business. And number two, understanding how each company likes to get its deliverables. Deliverables are what you send the company, the music, and the stuff that goes with the music. In other words, you're doing all the prep work needed by each company regarding audio formats, hitting the deadlines, naming your files correctly, creating good titles for your pieces of music, doing alt mixes, giving the publisher splits to the publisher, and uh, I mean the writer splits, sorry, uh, to the publisher. And while you might think that having great music is enough, all things being equal, I think I've said that before, the composer who gets all that other stuff right is the one that will get more music in a catalog, get more private opportunities to pitch for special requests, Yep, those do actually happen. And will probably get their music pitched more often because the libraries love them. Here's a great analogy for those of you who have raised kids and hired babysitters. You use two babysitters, count them too. Your kids love them both equally and would be happy having either one of them watch them. You know what? <laughs> I'm gonna put some water on a piece of paper towel, so I don't have to keep licking my fingers on camera. I'm trying to clean up my act and be a little less low rent, shall we say? So there you go, now I've got wet fingers. Um, one of the sitters responds quickly to phone calls about availability, gets the kids to bed on time, picks up all their little toys, puts the dinner dishes in the dishwasher, and has her own car to get to and from the babysitting gig while the other sitter, better known as sitter number two, um, is equally as great with the kids. The kids adore both of them. They would be happy with either sitter. And pardon me for referring to the sitter as a female. Honestly, it just got too confusing. I tried to be politically correct and put they in there, but it was just confusing. So, and all my babysitters when I was a kid uh, were young ladies, high school girls. So there you go. Please don't send any letters. Uh, while the other sitter is equally great with the kids, she doesn't quickly respond to phone calls about availability. The kids rarely make it to bed on time. That would have been my favorite sitter. The toys still need to be picked up and the dishes still need to be done when mom and dad get home. And sitter number two doesn't have a car, so one of the parents has to go get the babysitter, 
bring the sitter to their house, and when they get home from their romantic dinner date or whatever they're doing, they've got to get back in the car and drive the sitter home. So, which babysitter is going to get the first call? I rest my case. When you put it in terms of babysitting, it seems really obvious, but somehow people don't grasp this concept of just making it easier and better for your employer, and I put that word in, in air quotes. Um, with that in mind, I asked four Taxi's composer members to give me their checklist of things that they button up before they send music to the companies they work with. And I asked Taxi's head screener, Craig Pilo, to provide a checklist uh, as well because he's a very experienced library composer. And I thought maybe he would add something to it coming from the head screener perspective. But mostly what I got from him, truthfully, was composer perspective, which is fine. I asked the guys not to submit a book, as I told you. Some of them didn't follow those instructions, and I got encyclopedias, not mentioning any names, Paul Curto. Um, Some did, some didn't. But first, let's roll right out the door here with Mr. Keith LeBrant. Very, very successful taxi member, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. An incredible guitar player. Uh, Keith says, when sending to a publisher and I'm finished with the mix, Number one on his checklist is check if any tracks are clipping. That means audio clipping. If so, lower the gain and adjust the mix. Makes sense. You don't want to send distorted files. Um, number two is check the master bus if it's clipping. And if you don't know what a master bus is, it's basically your two mix out, the stereo output uh, of your DAW. Um, number three, and this is one that I am familiar with the word but didn't know much about it in this context, and I didn't go down a rabbit hole on it because it would suck too much time today, but we'll address it in the future, and that is confirm my dither is the correct setting for the publisher. Dither, D-I-T-H-E-R. It's a digital thing. Um, it basically has something to do with how uh, the digital audio is perceived by the brain processing it. And there are several, I think three levels of dither, if I remember correctly, and they affect how forgiving um, the audio processing is when they're dropouts. I think I got that right. I, <laughs> I have not been a professional engineer in the digital domain. I lived in the microphones, wires, analog, everything world. So I didn't know anything about dither when I was an engineer. But I think I got that pretty close to right. I'm sure you guys will correct me um, in the chat room. Uh, number four in Keith LeBrant's list is that he confirms that his Slate VSX headphone plug-in is bypassed. I believe what that does is it works with VSX headphones um, that Stephen Slate Audio sells, and it creates a mixing environment like a control room, a virtual control room, so that you're actually getting simulated reflections off of walls and all that kind of stuff. I, I've got the Waves version of that, and I'm extremely impressed with it. Um, literally sounds like you're in a control room. Um, he says that if you leave that in, the VSX plug-in turned on or inserted, that your mixes will sound quite shatty. There's a word I've never said before in my entire life, shatty. 
He goes on to say, though, that VSX headphones are incredible, by the way. So I had to Google them, and I think they were 300 bucks. And when Keith says something is incredible, I tend to believe it, and the reviews that they got online were incredible. So there you go, a little free plug for uh, Slate VSX headphones. Number five on Keith LeBrant's list is take a look at the requirements from the publisher, whether they want a WAV file, an AIF file, 2448 or 1644. Um, uh, why can't I think of the word right now? Anyway, you got it. How, how they want their uh, files. If they want 24-bit, uh, 48K or 16-bit, 44. Um, how they want their naming conventions. And, and I don't mean like a big party you go to with umbrella drinks, a bunch of other people sitting around coming up with baby names. I mean how they want the, the naming conventions. Um, and we're going to get into that later. But basically, it's how you spell out the file names for their purposes so that they don't have to redo them. Be sure to follow that religiously, he says. Number six on Keith LeBrant's list. Throw a couple of reference tracks that the publisher supplied in a plugin called Adapter Audio, and I'm going to spell that for you. It is A-D-P-T-R Audio, and I've got, got to spell that. We're in trouble. Uh, Adapter Audio to make sure that I'm in the ballpark of their mixed references. He says it's a great plugin for referencing, and I believe that I gave Liz the link for that. So, Liz, if you would be so kind to throw that in the chat room. Um, basically, it's something that compares the uh, compares your mix to a reference mix to see how the levels are and the EQ spectrum or the audio spectrum uh, looks. Okay, yep, it's matching EQ, um, the EQ curve. Uh, number seven from Keith LeBrant. If I previously sent tracks to the publisher, I throw some of them in the reference pub uh, reference plugin to make sure my levels are around what they are usually like. So in this case, he's using that software adapter um, audio not to check against the levels of the reference that the library sent him this time, but comparing it to the levels and overall EQ curve, presumably, of material that the library has signed from Keith in the past so that his stuff sounds consistent. That would be difficult if you were going from like an acoustic, light, breezy acoustic track to you know, like a hard rock track, but you know, similar types of things, rock and rock, acoustic, acoustic. Yeah, check it out. <coughs> Number eight from Mr. Keith LeBrant. I usually name my track at this point. Listen to the vibe of the track. Take in any clues from the publisher as to where this could be going and give it a unique name. Uh, and just a little uh, hint for those of you watching the live show today, we are going to do a show next week it's going to be entirely dedicated to creating tracks that are titles for your tracks that can make you more money. So we'll get into that a little deeper in the very near future. Number nine, uh, cut all the mixes, alt mixes, and stems. Be sure to follow the naming conventions that the publisher supplied. Again, we'll get into that in a minute from the guys who wrote a book. Number 10, Look at the file sizes of all the mixes slash stems to make sure all the ones that are full length of the track match. So in other words, if you're sending, you know, like a minute and a half long thing and you're doing a mix minus vocal, for instance, 
Um, if the file sizes aren't the same, then you probably haven't matched the length. You probably didn't start, you know, a, a beat before the downbeat um, and end it a beat after the, all audio is gone uh, or whatever your normal routine is. But they should be identical file sizes. Um, he says, obviously, stings, bumpers, 30-second cutdowns, etc., are going to have different file sizes. Thank you. This lets me know that they all started and stopped at the same place. That's important. Number 11 on Keith LeBrant's list is listen to all mixes and stems to confirm what I am hearing is what I'm expecting to hear. So a vocal instrumental mix has no vocals. So a vocal instrumental mix has no vocals. I don't understand that. But basically what he's trying to say um, I think he's trying to say, uh, I know what he's trying to say. Okay, if any mics were used for vocals, acoustic guitar, percussion, then check for random voices like your spouse saying dinner's ready or get out of the room, kids, dad's trying to work here. Um, because sometimes you leave a mic open and that somehow makes it onto the track. And if that track is not muted, it will make it onto your final mix. You don't want that. Number 12 from Keith LeBrant is fill out any metadata that is needed. Be sure to have seven cups of coffee and be sure to follow the publisher's requirements. So, um, metadata. And you know what? Not every library, most libraries have slightly, you know, they have variations on these themes. Not everybody's going to want you to do metadata. There's some that you're going to need to do for everybody, which is your name, your phone number, your email address, the title, um, basic stuff like that. And they may choose to retitle it. They may choose to put a naming convention in front of it that is like the first three letters of their library's name. Um, they may, they may not like your title and want to retitle it because they think it'll get more attention with a better title. There are all kinds of things that can happen. So all these things that I'm going to tell you today, they're all pretty similar, but they do change from library to library. And the single best thing you can do is to know how each of those libraries wants you to work with them and just make it easy for them to love you because you do exactly what they ask you to do. Doesn't... You know, there's no black art involved in that. Um, all right. And he also says, get this plugin um, for referencing mixes, which I mentioned before from Plugin Alliance, and it's called Adapter Audio, I believe. And once again, Liz, if you'd be so kind to put that up there, that would be great. Okay. And here we go. This is from the always hysterical, very wise, very successful Matthew Vanderbow. Um, he says, while the advice that I've, because he saw what the other guys wrote, um, because it's pretty long and daunting to read through all of it. That's true. Especially, I'm assuming, in the eyes of a newbie. So it, it's cool. Matt thought about his audience for a minute um, and, and wrote to make life easy for them. It's easy to get the, discouraged by all those little details, and you're going to see what he means by little details in a moment. And please don't let it be discouraging. Um, I think it's important for people to know that most of the post-production checklist stuff just becomes an autopilot thing after a while. So yeah, while it may sound daunting to those of you who have never done this stuff before, 
just know that after you do it a couple of times, you, you won't have to sit there with an actual checklist. You'll just know what to do. You know, it's kind of like getting in your car, putting on your seatbelt, starting your car, turning on the heater, making sure your mirrors are adjusted. You don't have to look at a check, checklist to do that, right? Um, if you're flying a plane, you do have to do it. Funny thing is, you have a much greater chance of crashing, you know, meeting your early demise in a car accident than you do in a private plane, but pilots use checklists and they go down and make sure that everything in that list is checked before they take off. Okay, so here we go. This is from Matt Vanderbo. Um, he says, let me give you a little different example than what the other guys might have given you. This is for when I work with some of my favorite companies. So that means when he says favorite companies, um, he probably gets special treatment because he makes them a ton of money. Um, and, and they just let him slide on a couple of things. Or maybe he happens to just work with several libraries that don't have as rigorous a checklist as the other companies. That will be determined at a future date when I speak to Matt next. Um, but he says they take over the tedious tasks like metadata and just let me make music. That would be everybody's dream, but trust me, folks, don't let Mr. Vanderbo fool you into thinking that your music is special, therefore you're going to get a pass. You have to earn that pass. You really have to earn that pass. You know, he's been doing this now for, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 years, something like that. And he's got very long-standing relationships with the companies that he makes a lot of money for. So he says, after a track is complete, I will always listen back a day or two later. This is very smart. Inside of the Pro Tools session, so I can make minor mix tweaks as I listen, which are usually needed. For this reason, I try to never complete a track and deliver it on the same day. That, of course, would be difficult to do if you're in a crunch situation, but it sounds like normal course of business for Matt is he finishes it, he saves it, he puts it away for a day or two, then he goes back and listens. And I, you know, having mixed thousands of songs in my life, that's a great piece of advice. If you've got the luxury of time on your side, absolutely go back and listen a day or two later and you will find little ways to perfect it even further. And do it at the beginning of a workday so that your ears aren't crispy or ringing or just tired. Um, Matt also verifies his levels by looking at the final mix waveform in a standalone program called Sound Studio. Um, he says it's about 35 bucks, and I'm guessing that that is very similar to uh, the previously mentioned program that Keith LeBrant mentioned. Um, I trust my eyeballs to tell me if a track is too loud or too quiet. And you might laugh or shake your head at this, but I have no, this is totally Matt Vanderbilt saying this, I have no freaking idea what a Luffs is. <laughs> um, so, you know, he, he's not the most technical guy. He's very, very smart. Um, doesn't know what Luffs are. But this is from the same guy the first time he turned on Pro Tools and looked at the initial splash screen. He goes, okay. Now what do I do? So there you go. And I'm very proud of the fact that a guy that started out not knowing what to do with, you know, like anything <laughs> is now amongst our taxi member Hall of Famers. He goes on to say that cut downs suck ass to make. <laughs> I only do them if necessary. Well, there you go. Uh, 
Next one on his list is he double checks that the title I've created, he's created, um, isn't one that I've already used. Ooh, there's something I've never heard before. After nearly 5,000 or so tracks, that's how many he's created, a clever and witty title can be hard to come by, and you don't want to have two of the same title in your personal catalog. One of my publishers and I ran into that problem a year or so ago, which created a lot of headaches for him. I still owe him a beer for that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Bounce alternate versions, he says. This is typically main mix, no lead, drums and bass, and no drums. So those are his, um, yeah, his versions. Uh, next up on Matt Vanderbo's list is make sure the title of the track is labeled appropriately as a lot of companies have very strict policies on their naming conventions. So this isn't necessarily the, the title. This is the naming convention means the way the title appears on the file for the sake of the library that you're working with. It's not the way that an editor would see um, the title. So let's say that it's like Michael's Music Library. Um, so let's say that would be coded as MML. Um, then maybe a hyphen or a colon or something. And then um, the song title is Love These Waves. Um, and then maybe something like Full Mix after that. That's a naming convention. But what the editor would see would only be I Love These Waves because all that other stuff. Oh, it would also see full mix um, because they need to know if they're looking for um, a full mix or um, like a mix without a vocal or bass and drums, what have you. Uh, okay, next thing from Matt Vanderbo is upon delivery of the track to the client, I log into my spreadsheet and code it appropriately in iTunes. And he parenthetically says, excuse me, I mean Apple Music with a system where a two-star rating means I've signed it non-exclusively and a five-star rating means that I've signed it exclusively. Then I add a colored dot in my Mac folders. A red dot means exclusive and a green dot means non-exclusive. Then I make more coffee. Then I make more music. 5,000 tracks, ladies and gentlemen. 5,000 tracks. He says on his website that his music can be heard virtually every hour of every day somewhere in the world. And I don't doubt that for a second. Um, he didn't mention composer catalog and I'm shocked by that because he's doing it very old school using a spreadsheet and the colored dots and all that stuff. If I didn't mention it before when I was talking about Keith LeBrant, he is the guy that invented and sells composer catalog. I have never made a penny from composer catalog um, by plugging it. I only plug it because I have taxi members that use it and love it. And this way you don't have to create clunky spreadsheets and use colored dots and all that stuff. Go check out composercatalog.com. Um, get the trial version. You will instantly see how incredibly useful it is, especially when you start getting several tracks in several different libraries' catalogs or many tracks in many libraries' catalogs. Composercatalog.com. Uh, okay, next up we have Mr. Greg Carroza. How are we doing on time? We're doing great. Um, this is Production Music Checklist from Greg Carroza. 
And he says, assuming that I have a deal in place and this isn't a pitch and music is complete already. First thing on his list is make sure I have and understand the publisher's library's delivery specs. What file format do they prefer, like WAVE or AIF, uh, AIFF? What the sample rate, the bit rate, the LUFs, which Matt Vanderbo has no idea what a LUF is, um, maximum peak for the audio level, the length of the track, how much silence they want before and after the track, the file name, and specific alternate mixes and or stems. And if there's nothing specced by the catalog, then he uses his own spec, which is the most common combination based on specs that I've seen working with several different companies. And that is 24-bit, 48K, wave file. Minus 10 LUFs. There you go, Vanderbo. Minus 10, baby. Max peak at minus 1 dB and one beat of silence before the song. Total fade to silence on the end with no additional silence after the fade. File name format, title, key, tempo, main mix, dot wave. And that's for main instrumental and vox, vox only, vocals only mix, if there are vocals. For vocal songs, I always print these three mixes, regardless of what I'm asked for, both pre and post mastering chain of plugins. So six total versions. Some libraries want stuff mastered. I would say many don't. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. To more easily create alt mixes, I keep my DAW session organized with colors and folders so I can easily turn groups of tracks on and off. So groups of tracks, subgroups. Vocals are red, guitars are blue. Um, he listens through every alt mix from beginning to end. I cannot tell you how critical it is. I know it seems like a giant pain in the butt after you've already heard a particular song or instrumental track, maybe hundreds of times while you're creating it, overdubbing it, mixing it. Last thing you wanna do is hear that mix over again because deep down inside you probably fear that you're gonna hear something as you're bouncing it um, and you're gonna to wanna to go back and fix it and you really don't wanna do one more version of the mix. Uh, but listen from beginning to end to make sure that there aren't any snap, crackles, pops, dropouts, or any weirdness in there like, Keith, it's time for dinner. You don't want that stuff in there. So you got to listen top to bottom. Same thing is true. But back in my day when we used to, um, when I was still an assistant engineer, and at the end of the album, or maybe like the, the record was done, but we hadn't picked how the songs were going to be sequenced yet for the record. So everybody in the band ordered a, a cassette with their preferred sequence of 10 or 11 songs on it. And you had to sit there, you, you make it, you can't just check the first five seconds and the last five seconds to make sure there's audio on there. You have to listen all the way through to make sure that the sequence they requested is, is there. Um, you only get to make one mistake like that in the land of professional people where you tell them they're getting something and they listen to it and there's nothing there. 
We see that at Taxi all the time. Screeners start to listen to a file, and there's nothing in the file. Happens several times a month, if not many times a month. Um, this is a vocal version. Oh, look at that. There's no vocal on it. So things like that. Listen all the way through. I know it's a royal pain in the butt, but you got to do it. Um, if you bounce a mix offline, clicks and pops may come out of nowhere. Um, you make include or exclude the wrong tracks for a specific mix. Okay, you may. He meant to say may. That's exactly what I was talking about. You, you label it as a mix minus vocal, but you forgot to mute the vocal track. Um, if the publisher specs include MP3s, I add identifying metadata to the MP3 using iTunes as the way to do facilitate that. The title of the song, the artist, the composers, the full names, the PROs, the genre, the year, the BPM, and comments, I add my email address and phone number. Critical. Got to have that. Follow the publisher's metadata spec, metadata spec for details like the title, the key, the BPM, the instrumentation, the description, the moods, and the keywords. Some just want a spreadsheet where they give you the format. Others want a list. Others have websites where you fill out a form uh, for the metadata as, part of, metadata as part of the uploading process. If you're sending it and not uploading it through a portal, then zip it all to zip all files together in one folder, um, and you want to include the audio files, the lyric sheets, and the spreadsheet with your metadata in there. Okay. Um, next, if there are multiple writers, make sure I have a co-writer, a split sheet document with all the pertinent info on it, and signed by all. Full names and full names are registered with PROs. Uh, the name of the PRO, the IPI number, the personal publishing entity name, like if I owned a publishing company, it would be Lasco Music Publishing maybe. Um, the PRO and the IPI number, if compositions will be self-published, um, and what the defined writer splits are. Um, almost never has a library, a publisher, or sync agent asked for this, but it's good to have in case... Uh, a conflict or confusion arises. Manually backup of my currently work. No, manually backup my current work drive at the end of every work session when the project is complete to full live, in other words, connected to the computer and fully accessible backup drive. Automatic backup full live drive to NAS drive, NAS drive nightly. I have no idea what the hell Carroz is talking about in this one. I highlighted it, meant to call him over the weekend, and I forgot. So Carroz, if you're in the chat room, let us know what the hell you're talking about on the bullet point that's automatic backup full. Oh, so if your backup drive is full, um, then automatically spits out a backup to an NAS drive nightly or internal network. Now, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. So there you go. Carroz is going to have to fill us in on that one. Um, automatic backup full. Here's another course of action. Live backup drive to cloud storage nightly. So in other words, your, your main backup drive that's attached to your computer um, might be full. 
So you want a way that automatically goes, okay, if drive A is full, then I'm going to go to drive B, whether that's in the cloud or yet another drive. Um, after all files are delivered and accepted, delete the completed signed exclusive projects from my current work drive. That makes sense. That way you don't make a mistake and accidentally submit that stuff to a taxi listing or to another catalog. Keep non-exclusive music projects, uh, signed projects on the current work drive in case other opportunities come along for those. You've got them on that drive so you know that they're still viable for signing with other people, for non-exclusive, okay? NAS drives, okay. Cowboy Lemonhead says NAS drives are great for backend. Yeah, too much information there. I'm not getting it. Oh, Carosa. Carosa's in there and he's talking. Let's see what he's saying. Uh, he's got an NAS. I don't is NAS a brand or is it an acronym for something? That's what I'm trying to find. It's a network attached store. Oh, NAS is an acronym for network attached storage. So in other words, it's one big honking drive that's attached to everything in your house. So uh, I've got that. So that if stuff goes down, it's there. It, it sees everything. And you've probably got um, folders on that drive for different computers, different things, um, partitions, whatever. Not going to get that technical. All right. Um, picking back up on Carosa's thing, finishing it up here. Uh, Make local project folders with a red or a yellow dot for exclusive or non-exclusive, respectively. Well, there you go. That's two guys that talk about the colored dots. I use the colored dots all the time. I'm in Apple land. Maybe PCs have it. I don't know. But anything that's got a green dot on it, my computer, means that this is... I, I may have 20 versions of something, but the one with the green dot is the one that got used or should be used or should be referenced in the future. If a file folder has like four colored dots on it, to me, that means really critical stuff in here. This is the place to go to get that. Like I'll have a Road Rally 2023 file and that will have multiple colored dots on it. That way my I can find it easily on my desktop and I know that is the file. That is the mothership for all other files for the 2023 Road Rally, which by the way, is gonna happen November 2nd through the 5th. Um, Enter all pertinent info into Composer's Catalog. Well, there you go. Mr. Carosa uses Composer Catalog, so if he's using it, you should be using it. Um, I track the ID info on a song, the writers, and publishers only. Great. All right, Carosa's in the house uh, if you've got questions for him. But now we're going to move on to Yo Polly, also known as Paul Croteau. Um, the man who didn't write a book, he wrote an encyclopedia. Um, thanks, Paul. <laughs> Appreciate that. I'd recommend to folks who are new to, in the, new to the business that they create a folder for each library that they get into and keep a copy of their paperwork in there, like their, their contract, for instance, um, their composer agreement, the submission guidelines for that library. Um, then follow those instructions to the letter. That's how you make music libraries love you. Following instructions to the letter. 
Oh, but that sounds so daunting, Michael. It seems like so much work. Uh, as one of these guys said, uh, I can't remember who it was now, said, I think it was Vanderbilt, said that after you do it a few times, you don't even have to like look at a checklist, that you, you just know. So there you go. Don't worry about it. What seems daunting now will seem routine. Maybe boring, but routine and pretty easy to do after you've done it a few times. Um, okay, make it easy for a library to work with you. And then he goes into, before bouncing anything, determine the delivery deadline. Makes perfect sense. Plan ahead so you don't miss it. You guys would be shocked. Just on our end at Taxi, how many people, especially, excuse me, the bigger the listing, the more important, the bigger the prize, like if it's for a you know, $50,000 TV commercial. Um, and, and we say in bold, in all caps, at least once, if not two or three times in the listing, there will be no deadline extensions. No special cases if your dog ate your homework or something tragic happened. We, we can't change the ad agency's deadline, for instance, because they've got a deadline to show it to their client at a big meeting and then they've got a deadline to get that commercial on the air. So they're not going to change everything in that sequence of events to accommodate the fact that maybe you drank a little too much coffee or <clears throat> maybe, I, I, I don't know, a dog ate your homework. Let's just leave it at that. And you're going to be an hour late or even 30 seconds late. When 11.59 p.m. rolls around and that listing closes, you got to hit that deadline. You just have to. So same thing is true if you're working directly with a production music library. If they give you a deadline of 11.59 p.m. on Wednesday night, get it to them a few hours earlier than that. Impress them. You know, I got my first job in the industry by saying, boss, I'll be the first one in the door and the last one out every night. And he looked at me and he said, all right, you got the job. So be that person. Um, create good titles. Keep them concise and avoid punctuation. It can screw with some of the older software that some libraries use. Punctuation, I've heard this from more than one person. Um, things like go get them with an apostrophe um, indicating that the M, E-M, used to be them. So it's a truncated um, word and you've used an apostrophe. I've definitely heard of that causing problems. We had that very problem with our software for the back end of our website, Taxi's whole back end system, which is quite elaborate, um, we had a real problem with, um, it just didn't like titles. Every now and then somebody's title would either disappear, the music was in there and the submission still went through, but the title would disappear. There was some problem caused by the fact that it didn't like characters in the title. So there you go, we fixed it. Other people may not have. Um, I try to keep titles to two or three words or less while still making them applicable to the genre. For example, Dark Tension Build 2 is not a good title, right? You might think it's a good title because the editor's gonna note they're getting dark tension uh, and a build, but it's not a great title. Behind the Door is a better title, he says. Behind the Green Door would be an even better title for those of you who are old enough to know what that is. Um, action scene is bad. Sudden storm is a good title. 
Some composers like to create their titles first. This is a great suggestion. Some composers like to create their titles first to help motivate their musical ideas while writing. Keep the target in mind. That's so great because a lot of people have told me over many, many years that they sit down with the intention to write one thing and end up with something else because they drift off course. They make a, a little mistake or go wandering down a rabbit hole and go, ooh, that's cool, and they keep going, and, but then they miss the mark and they don't have the thing that they were trying to create. So while they did get a cool track out of the deal, maybe they got a cool track that wasn't right for that listing. So create the title first. Um, I like this. Don't title something Dark Tension Build 2. Mix 1, Friday night, 11 p.m., none of that. We see those all the time. Instead, just call it Behind the Door. Or if you've got an action scene, call it Sudden Storm. Got to think about that one. Anyway, um, double-check the library's file format requirements. We've talked about that before, but I'm going to talk about it again. Do they want WAVE, AIFFs, MP3s, and do they need them at 48K 24-bit? or 44116-bit. I have a file on my desktop listing my libraries and their requirements. Most of the libraries I work with are now requesting 48K 24-bit, but I have some renegades that still want others. I have one library that wants both WAVE and MP3 and one that wants AIFF. I'm suspecting the ones that want the WAVE and the MP3, um, first of all, they would clearly want like high-res mp3s um, and maybe there's some shows that just want to work with mp3s I don't know I can't imagine but I guess they're out there um, okay make sure you know which alt mixes the library requires this varies wildly between libraries for example um, one library I know almost never asks for any alt mixes while another library, and I happen to know the guy that owns that one as well, asked for full mixes plus eight alt mixes. And if you knew their two personality types, the owners of these libraries, you would completely understand that. That's funny. Um, let's see. Uh, and the one that asked for eight alt mixes wants like a 30-second, um, a full mix, a 30-second, a bass and drums, a bed, a bed with no drums, percussion only, a mix with no percussion, um, reduced, which is different than a bed. I don't know what that is. Um, and a stinger, which is bump, just, you know, chopping the last, whatever happens on the downbeat at the end, that's your sting. Um, for what it's worth, I get about an equal number of placements from both of these libraries. In other words, um, the library that has a pretty rigid or daunting, some might say, requirement for many different alt mixes and, and cutdowns, um, and the other library that's much more forgiving and easier to work with in that regard, and he does get about the same number of placements from each of those libraries. So that's interesting to know. There's a little inside baseball. Um, confirm the library's submission process. Do you upload the, your material through a portal, or do you send files directly? Think about your metadata. If the library uses an upload portal, you usually enter your metadata, metadata in an online form as part of the upload process. If sending files directly, you need to tag the files yourself. Include your name as it appears in your PRO account. Oh, that's so important. Don't be like Michael Lasko 
on one thing, and your PRO account is Michael D. Lasco, or Mikey Lasco, or Mickey Lasco, or Michael L., or ML, none of that stuff. It's got to be exactly the same. Middle initial or not, whatever, it's got to be exactly the same in both places, or you are asking for trouble down the road and probably screwing yourself out of some money, so don't do it. Um, Include, the, include your name as it appears in your PRO account along with your PRO number, very important. Include BPM and key information um, and use the comment field for a brief description using mood and genre keywords. So that goes in the comment field. There's no standard library portal or metadata requirement. Um, some portals are relatively easy and others are outdated and cumbersome. Information you will need. <clears throat> genre and subgenre, um, in other words, like hip hop slash trap or rock heavy metal, etc. Um, they're going to want the key, the tempo, meaning the BPM. The instrumentation sounds like, um, very, which is very easy. Sounds like is very easy. Like sounds like the chain by Fleetwood Mac. That gives a pretty good audible reference in the brain of the end user. Um, but for instrumental music, a little harder, you know, because you don't have lyrics and you don't have a vocal melody, so it could be harder. Um, mood, anxious, excited, frantic, keywords, which are, yes, different from um, the mood, which are tension, orchestral, epic, battle, fight scene, drama, action, competition. Um, so one describes a mood and the other describes keywords that describe, huh, that's, you know, I don't have a good way to explain that, so I'm not going to try and BS my way through it, but you get the idea. Mood, anxious, excited, frantic, keywords, yes, they are different than mood, tension, orchestral, epic battle, fight scene, drama, action, competition. A brief description, and you would be shocked at how many people can't write a brief description. You'd be shocked at how many people can't write a brief checklist. Not mentioning any names, Polly, am I? <laughs> uh, anyway, a brief description in Polly's estimation is hybrid orchestral action instrumental that starts with pulsing strings and synth themes, followed by percussion, then growing to an epic, bombastic, finale. I'm going to read that one more time. This is the brief description. I've seen shorter ones. Honestly, Paul tends to write books, but this is good nonetheless. Hybrid orchestral action instrumental. Hybrid orchestral. That's very telling. Hybrid orchestral action. Inst I, I would have said Orchestral hybrid, that means, you know, it's got real strings and horns and stuff. It's some synth layered in there. Um, instrumental that starts with pulsing strings and synth, synth themes, followed by percussion, then growing to an epic, bombastic finale. Um, it's good. It's a little long, but it's, it's good. And, you know, a lot of times they will actually take these descriptions that you've written and they will include them with the track in the catalog. Um, so it's good because it helps your music get licensed because the end user, which is oftentimes an editor, can look at that and go, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Something that starts out with orchestral, adds some synths, has a build to it, and then it gets really big at the end and becomes an epic bombastic finale. 
that's worth a listen by me. And they can scan that in, what, a second or two? So that one or two second scan of your description may be the reason that you end up in a show or don't end up in a show. So that description along with the title, I believe, is really, really, really important. Polly goes on to say, make sure your levels meet the library's requirements and industry standards. Some libraries have specific LUFS requirements. Matt Vanderbo apparently doesn't work with those companies. Minus 10 LUFS, for example. Use your stock metering DAW plugin to check. So whatever, if you're running Logic or Pro Tools or Ableton or whatever, use your metering to stock metering uh, plugin to check for your LUFS. Got it? LUFS. <laughs> Bouncing. Make sure all alt mixes are the same length. Um, somebody mentioned that earlier. Editors will sometimes drag multiple versions of your track into their editing software to figure out which makes sense for a scene. So rather than, oh, there's a title I like, let me listen to that one. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. They drag one version of it over into their, you know, an audio track in their editing software and they listen to it go, it's what I'm looking for stylistically, mood-wise, but I wonder if they have a version that gets bigger faster or has more percussion or whatever they're yearning for they might choose three or four versions drag them over simultaneously that way it's just a little faster to go nope nope yep we have a winner chicken dinner um even if the drums only mix has eight bars of silence at the beginning it still needs to line up with the other tracks Otherwise, they're going to drop it in there and they're going to think, you know, 000, zero, zero equals 000. zero, zero. One of them is eight bars of silence till the drums come in. The other one just boom, right in on the beginning of it. So just make them all start at the same zeros. That's kind of a simplistic explanation, but you know what I mean, right? Make the file lengths proper. Don't leave an empty bar of music in the beginning. A four bar count is fine when you're working with a collaborator. This is really important. I've heard, we've all heard here at Taxi, people submitting stuff to Taxi with the count off on it. No, that is not a professional look, you know? It just isn't. Um, but the final product should start right away with just a bit of silence to ensure a clean downbeat. So yeah, you know, if you try and snug your editor right up to that downbeat, um, Let's say, you know, let's say the downbeat is a vocal right off the bat. Uh, you know, measure one downbeat is who let the dogs out. And if you cut it right on the H of the who, which is technically a W, um, it's going to sound unnatural. So you may actually want the breath in front of it to make it sound natural or whatever it is. You simply want to start, just give just a hair, not a few seconds, not 30 seconds, literally just a hair, a beat, a half a beat, something right in front of it. Um, the final product should start right away, just a bit of silence to ensure a clean downbeat and don't have excess silence at the end of the file. So when you get to the end of the file, throw your headphones on, turn the volume up, and when you're 100% sure that the ring out is gone, the instrument ring out is gone, or the reverb tail is gone, 100% sure at loud levels in headphones, boom, that's where you stop it. 
Um, oh, and he goes on to say, listen with headphones to make sure you don't cut off the reverb tail. Well, there you go. After bouncing, Pauly says, listen to every bounced mix and alt mix from start to finish. Where have we heard that before? Strange things can happen when you're bouncing. Clicks can appear. DAWs can glitch, causing a piano sustain pedal to fail or a spike in volume for a track. And sometimes you find musical mistakes in your word that you need to go back and correct. Oh my goodness, that would suck. If delivering the files instead of using a portal, put the files and metadata sheet into a single folder. Name that folder with your name, the date, and project descriptor. So in other words, um, cocktail, jazz, um, well, in this case, it would be Michael Lasko, what's today's date? The 3rd, April 3rd, 2023, cocktail jazz solo piano. There you go. Then zip or compress that folder before sending. This ensures that when your client uncompresses the file, they'll end up with a single, easily identifiable folder instead of, oh yeah, instead of six different files in their download directory. Uh, for example, and he actually used my name. Why, thanks, Polly. I'm flattered. Uh, folder example, Michael Lasko, 040323-classic rock brief. Oh, making fun of me for being old, huh? You think I only listen to classic rock? Is that the deal? <laughs> uh, anyway, I do love my classic rock. That's actually for one of my... No, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a data breach I shouldn't give out. Um, send the file using the method described in the library submission paperwork. Just follow the friggin' instructions to a T. Don't cut corners or they will look at you like, ugh, piece of work. Person can't follow simple instructions. Remember my babysitter analogy at the top of the show? One babysitter, your kid loves both babysitters equally. One of them doesn't do the dishes, put away the toys, or have a car to get to and from the gig. The other one puts the dishes away, um, puts the toys away, has their own car. Which one are you going to pick, even though your kids love both of them equally? Which one's going to get the first call, first crack at the gig? Um, some want services, some of the libraries want services like WeTransfer. Others use Dropbox or Box, while others have their own upload portal on a server. After delivering, move your project into your finished directory or library directory because you keep your projects properly organized, right? Right. Make a duplicate of the project to your backup disk because you're backing everything up, right? Right. Update Composer Catalog or whatever system you use to keep track of things. Take a break. Rest your ears. Enjoy a frothy beverage of your choosing. I inserted that word, Polly, to make it more interesting. <laughs> and then get back to work writing more music. So that's pretty cool. Have we done three or four of these already? Uh, I think four. And two out of the four said, have a beverage and get back to work. Um, they're so right. Um, okay, and now the last one of the bunch. Wow, this is taking a long time to get through, but this is really good information. And remember, that in the April Taxi Newsletter, um, definitely go check it out. It'll come out sometime around the 27th or 28th of April. I'm going to put all this stuff in print form in the newsletter, and maybe we'll throw in the video of the show in the newsletter as well. 
Um, okay, this is from Craig, Craig Pilo, our head screener, Taxi, who is also an accomplished composer um, and it has his own catalog of stuff, his own little library. Uh, and number one is reread the delivery requirements from the client with the same diligence you read a taxi listing. And if I may comment, and I don't mean this as a put down, the taxi members who read the listings carefully and follow what the, you know, some people are just better at following instructions. And if somebody's giving you the instructions says, here's how you can make money, why wouldn't you follow those instructions? So do follow the instructions. Number two, next I begin exporting my tracks. With my DAW, which is Cubase in his case, I label the files according to the library's specifications. One of my two main libraries I work with prefers 24-bit 48K AIFFs, and the other prefers 2448 uh, waves. So I make sure to set my export settings accordingly, depending on which one I'm working with. One library prefers this naming convention, which is ABC, which is the library name, not the network. Let's call it Michael's Library, um, which is a library prefix. Um, so let's, you know what? Yeah, let's call it MML for the library prefix, Michael's Music Library, uh, followed by underscore, then the track's title, followed by an underscore, then the mixed version, which is not like version 3.5, but they're talking full mix or mix minus vocal or guitar bass, um, guitar bass drums, whatever your stems are or your alt mixes are, that's the place to put it, followed by another underscore AIFF, which is the file type, of course. So, oh man. I can't read this off and make it make sense. Um, he's got a bunch of information in here that will make tremendous sense when you're looking at it in the context of the printed page, but there you go. I mean, trying to read that, nah, be too hard to understand. So I'm not, he's just showing you, visually showing you how he does the naming um, conventions. Libraries use different database programs to store audio files like SoundMiner, which is probably the oldest and most commonly used. Source Audio, also been around for a while now and commonly used. Harvest Media, SyncTank, Disco, which is extremely popular, and they all respond differently to different labels. Number three on Craig Pilo's list is next I export my stems. Again, each library has their own specifications for stems, so I typically revisit my client's delivery requirements to double check. I know this sounds daunting. It sounds like a homework assignment, but it's a business you're trying to run and you want to succeed in this business and you want to be presumably a six-figure composer that does music and nothing else. So you're making your entire income from music. So you got to learn to do this stuff. But as I think it was Vanderbo said very early on, maybe it was Keith LeBrant, um, once you do it several times, you don't have to sit there and think about it much. It, again, it, it's like doing anything that you do repetitively. It just becomes habit. Um, re, he revisits the requirements, the client's requirements to double check, even though I'm quite familiar, just to avoid having to do it twice. Uh, there appear to be a lot of questions about this portion of the export slash delivery process 
when he was on Taxi TV earlier this year. So to be clear, he says, some libraries prefer STEMs to start at the beginning of the session. Some libraries prefer STEMs to start at the same place as your mixes. Some libraries prefer the mastering plugin is, ooh, this is important. Some libraries prefer the mastering plugin is turned off for the STEMs, while some other libraries prefer to leave the mastering plugin on for the STEMs. As an audio engineer retired, I got to think about that one. So let's say that you sent them the full mix was mastered, right? And now you're going to send them stems, but you're going to turn off the mastering. That makes sense because they may want to master on their end. What I'm trying to get to is mastering is affected. Certainly the compression, uh, and if you're using multi-bandwidth compression, it's going to be affected by what the instrumentation is in your mix. So by leaving the mastering plugin turned on for both the full mix and for the individual tracks or a group of tracks that you would find in a stem, that could affect the way the um, mastering plugin is being triggered, like what the threshold is, what the EQ is, all that stuff. Um, I got to think about that one. I'm not really sure. But if libraries ask for it, give it to them. Don't get into a deep discussion or argue with them. Just give them what they ask for. Um, some libraries prefer that you bounce and group all tracks to one section. Some libraries want all tracks exported separately. So that's literally like a multi-track. Um, you know, like a two-inch 24-track multi-track. Each, each track is its own thing. Um, unless, of course, it's a submix that's been pre-mixed down to a pair of stereo tracks or something. Uh, number four, the reason so many mix, the reason for so many mixes is you want to give editors clear choices to use your music in any situation. If there's not a lot of dialogue happening, they may very likely use your full mix. If there is dialogue happening, they'd likely choose your no lead vocal mix and so on, depending on the scene. That's true. Um, who was it? Somebody earlier said that the two libraries that this gentleman worked with, one requires all kinds of breakouts and stems and cutdowns and blah, 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 and the other one barely. And yet both of the libraries have gotten an equal number of placements, give or take. Now, that may or may not have anything to do with the fact that one wants all those different options and the other doesn't. It may be that they're working with kind of an equal number of shows that use an equal amount of music and that they've been in a long-term relationship with the music soups or editors at those shows. So there's so many variables that can drive how much music is used from a library that I don't believe that... Um, the different types of alt mixes or bouncing certain types of stems or not from one library to another library is going to greatly affect. But I do completely agree with Craig Pilo and others that have said, hey, there are going to be times when an editor loves the approach in a piece of music. They love the attitude. They love the mood. They love the tempo. Everything about it is firing in all cylinders. But there happens to be a lot of dialogue and they wish there wasn't a lead vocal in there. So having a mix minus vocal in that case is going to make your track the winner because all the other things are working. So th there is something to be said for that. Um, I don't personally have enough experience as a library composer. As a matter of fact, I have goose eggs, zero experience as a library composer. 
And I, I live with the information that I've learned from library owners who are my close friends and members who've become close friends over the years. So what I know has been gleaned from them. And I personally, based on my knowledge that I, I, I don't have any personal experience, but based on what I've learned from both sides of the user fence, uh, I would say that there are always cases where having stems or alt mixes are going to be useful. Most of the time, it's not that important, but it's the exceptions that could be the difference between making, you know, 70 grand a year and 82.5 a year. So there's a lot to be said for it. You know what? Be a Boy Scout. What do the Boy Scouts say? Be prepared. There you go. Um, so why export the stems? Truthfully, there are many reasons, but you want the stems readily available so an editor can easily assemble your track and do their own mix to their own specifications. A, a great example is you've got music ostensibly playing on a jukebox uh, in the back of a bar scene, and you've got a couple that's dancing and they're having a little conversation. Well, back in the old days, the, the guy mixing the show, the person mixing the show, uh, would just dip the fader. But it didn't sound that good. It was pretty obvious. It sounded a little cheesy. It's like every time the, the actors are going to have a little conversation on the dance floor, the music magically drops down. So what they do now is they leave the music at a constant level, but they will drop in the vocals when there's no conversation and drop the vocals out, or maybe a lead guitar, a saxophone, anything that would compete in that vocal frequency range. They literally, it's like hitting a mute button on your mixer, but they're doing it by using um, stems. So there's a great practical application right there. While this is rare, Polly says, um, I've seen cue sheets where they layer in your tracks as the scene progresses. They'll start with one track, layer the others in as the scene progresses to create their own build. I'm curious about, now I guess it's, it's I was curious if you make more money as they use more. I know you don't make more money from using more tracks, but it would still be considered just one placement. They're just altering the mix. Um, once I've exported, Polly says this is number five. Once I've exported my full mix, my alt mixes, and my stems, the next thing I do is import all of those files back into an empty session in the exact same manner an editor would if they were importing my tracks directly into a show or a movie. I don't know that I've ever met anybody else that does it, but I totally get why you're suggesting this, Polly. Sounds like a pain in the butt, but well worth doing. This allows me to quickly see and identify any visible problems. I make sure that my track lengths are accurate, that my audio files are visible, that my start points are what I intended them to be, and that my endings are neither cut off nor contain excess dead space or Keith LeBrant's wife um, saying, Keith, it's time for dinner. <laughs> Number six on Polly's list is I will typically spot check and listen to as many files as time allows. This allows me to confirm that the files are labeled correctly as this type of quality control wouldn't be visible when looking at the files. I do this to make sure the percussion only stem is indeed percussion only and that the no melody mix is in fact no melody. Yep, sometimes you just got to use those ears. Next, I put my stems into a folder within the folder and label them accordingly. 
Um, again, this will show up when we actually put this in print in the newsletter. It's Craigslist, not Paul's. Oh, this is Paul's. I keep saying thank you. No, it's Craig's. You Got it. I know. Oh, okay. I keep saying it's Polly's. It's Craig Pilo. Sorry, Craig. Pilo's sitting at home right now, pulling his hair out. Sorry. My apologies. A lot to do here, you know? It's not easy doing a show. Um, for this particular client who liked AIFFs, embed the, meta directly, embed the metadata. I don't know why I have such a hard time with that. Directly into the files. But for others who prefer waves, I reconcile the metadata and track listing with the Schedule A, which is usually attached to the publisher's agreement. Here's what I always double check and proofread my IP number and make sure the splits are accurate. Here's where I always, that point is where he double checks and proofreads his IP, I think he means IPI number. He's only got IP number and make sure the splits are accurate. Finally, I put any paperwork and spreadsheets and metadata, etc., into the folder and zip it up and send it to the client, usually via wetransfer.com, but some prefer Dropbox or a direct upload to their server. Um, I use Hightail when I'm sending big files. I've never had it fail on me, so there's another possibility for you. And finally, from Craig Pilo, not Paul, um, I, he says he likes WeTransfer because it sends me an email when my files have been delivered and downloaded by the client. If for some reason they aren't delivered or downloaded, a typical email follow-up may be necessary. So yeah, the same is true for Hightail and some others. They've got four or five or six different options. When you send a file, you can be notified that the, notified that the file was downloaded. Um, you can put a time bomb on it so that there's only like a one week or a 30 day window or four hour window to download the file, all that sort of stuff. Um, so there you have it. We've got uh, 15 minutes left. Um, hopefully I'll be able, uh, Hair's, Craig is putting his hairs back in now. There you go. Um, hopefully I can answer some of your questions. Maybe some of the guys are still in the chat room. I'm sure they would love to answer questions. But the bottom line for all this is that if you want music libraries to love you, then they've got to love working with you. And the reason they love working with you is because you follow simple instructions well and make it easy, make it frictionless for them to work with you. Don't create problems or more work on their end because they will default to people who aren't problematic and don't create more work for them. Make it easy. Paul Croteau says, it's a business, treat it like a business. A lot of people don't really have the business gene, Polly. I believe that people are kind of either exposed to it early in life, maybe some are born with it, um, some figured it out in one of their earliest jobs. Um, other people, no matter how much you try and beat it into their brains, just aren't built that way and will never really have a good business head. And some people assume that, you know, oh, you've got a good business head means that you're good at math or with spreadsheets or stuff. But uh, it's just about be a Boy Scout, act responsibly, do what people want you to do to make their life easy on their end. Because guess what? You're not the only composer in their catalog or... Um, yeah, they, they may have 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000. 
And so if you're just one person that's making their life a little more difficult when they receive your music, imagine now if they've got 300 people that are all pitching for that same thing. Uh, and they've got to listen to all that music within a day or two. You get it, right? All right. Um, okay, Colin O'Donohoe. Hey, Colin, how are you? Uh, wants to know, what about a composer's name with... Um, uh, what do you call that? <laughs> that type of percussion. With a, uh, a percussion, that type of punctuation, I mean. God, I'm dingy today. Um, so that's a great question. You know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, somebody mentioned, one of the guys mentioned that titles with punctuation, like an apostrophe or a question mark or something or a, a quotation mark, that that throws a lot of database programs off. Um, we solved the problem with the taxi database. We experienced that same thing. Um, I don't know. Honestly, Colin, uh, an example would be, you know, go get em, which is apostrophe E-M versus T-H-E-M. It's a truncated version of the word. Therefore, we'd get an apostrophe in front of E-M. Um, I don't know. I really don't have a good answer. Maybe one of the guys... Um, Apostrophe, yes, thank you. <laughs> How does copyright work at Taxi? Uh, Taxi doesn't participate in any deal. We take no ownership of your music. Um, that's a whole show in and of itself. I might recommend, uh, where did the person go that was asking that question? Um, Oh, man, it just jumped all over the place, so I've lost it. Anyway, go to the Taxi Forum at forumswithans.taxi.com. Um, questions like that will be answered by your more experienced fellow members. Uh, my, my short version of my take on it, my opinion, is if you are pitching a song that you think is going to be a monster hit for a big artist, absolutely register that copyright with the Library of Congress. I will also tell you that many of our most experienced composer members who create instrumental tracks for production music libraries that frequently get them into TV shows, a lot of reality shows, um, they generally don't register the copyright for each instrumental track because an instrumental track on its own, 99.5% of the time, is not gonna generate a lot of income. It's a business that where the aggregate income from many tracks and many catalogs generates a big income eventually. It takes years to get it to that point, but when it does, it's steady and ever-growing. So that's a good thing. But, you know, one track might bring in a couple hundred bucks a year, or it might bring in $7.14 a year, or it might bring in nothing. So if you are going to do, let's say, one track a day, Monday through Friday, and you've got roughly 300 tracks, you would then have to file a copyright registration on 300 instrumental tracks. It's going to cost you more than they will probably generate. And the libraries will want to copyright them anyway, and things get retitled all the time. So I'm not a music attorney. Don't consider that legal advice. But ask your fellow members to find out what they do. But I am absolutely certain that I'm correct about if you are pitching songs 
that are songs that somebody could potentially steal and have a mega hit with. Personally, I'd want them to have a mega hit with my stolen song. Um, but you, you do need to be able to prove when you created it, and you prove that by registering the copyright with the Library of Congress. So there you go. Not a music attorney. Um, Yes, the price of registering a copyright is insane these days. The price of everything is insane these days, Marion. I don't know how much more of this inflation stuff we can take. It's ridiculous. Uh, I went to the grocery store yesterday and was absolutely astonished by, there are things that I buy on a regular basis that have literally gone up 100%. And if inflation ever gets cured, whatever form that takes, whether it's by something the Federal Reserve does or by an election or by nature, who the hell knows. If it ever resolves itself, you can bet your tushy that a lot of the prices aren't going to come back down. So we got that to look forward. Um, have I seen the price of arugula lately? No, I have not. Arugula is not my friend. Um, don't like arugula. My wife and daughters, however, love it. Um, steal my song, make a hit, <laughs> says Keith LeBrant. I couldn't agree more, Keith. Um, Peter Leosa, uh, I only submit MP3s and no metadata. I think as the artist, I have the right to make these calls and these libraries really work for me. My only question is why I have no placements. Maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, and I wouldn't say, well, it depends which libraries you are in. That may also, you know, people say, well, I don't really need to use taxi as a middleman because... I can Google production music library and submit my music on, on my own. Yeah, you, you can. Um, but you can spend many, many hours per week, per month doing that uh, when you could be making more music uh, and having Taxi do all the legwork of figuring out which libraries are the best libraries. Uh, because there are a lot of libraries out there that may or may not suit your purpose as well. They may not be good for the kind of music you're making. They may be libraries that have an extremely low bar of entry, if any. Therefore, a lot of the music is crap. Therefore, their customer base tries them once, doesn't come back again. You want to be in good libraries. Um, and that's what Taxi will do for you. So that said, um, libraries don't really work for you so much as they work with you. You're 50-50 partners in most cases. You want to make life easy for them. Don't, don't look at them as the enemy or they work for you. Um, you're partners. You want them to be happy with you and you want to be happy with them. Maybe that's the reason you don't have any placements yet. Here's a question from Yuri Kusina. Um, when stems are required, I've mastered them individually so that when bus to output, the cumulative result, the Full mix is complete, not, exa not exceeding zero dBFs. Am I doing it wrong? I don't have experience with that, but if, if I'm understanding this correctly, if you've mastered them individually, um, 
I would think that the mastering software, just hearing one instrument at a time, is going to react differently depending on the software, depending on how you're using it, thresholds, all that kind of stuff. Um, so each of those tracks then are mastered independently. You put them all back together. It's not like a stereo mix was mastered all at once. I don't believe that that's a good methodology. Um, maybe one of our highly experienced six-figure members who's in the chat room today could tell you that. Um, Let's see. And Libby Harrison says to Peter, the gentleman asked the question before, maybe you've got no placements because they can't find your contact info and your non-metadata. There you go. You know, just do what they ask. Or maybe you just really don't want to be in the business, then that's okay. You know, don't, don't do what they ask and don't be in the business. Um, I have 10 second tracks bringing four numbers per year, and I don't even like that. I, I don't understand that, Chris. I have 10 seconds tracks bringing four numbers per year, and I don't even like the track myself. I think what he's trying to say, he or she, I have a 10 second track that brings in a, a four digit income um, per year, and I don't even like the track. Okay, yeah. Uh, No, I'm, I'm not saying that, Alf, that it's not worth doing the copyright as long as I have submitted through Taxi. It's not what I said. Um, what I said was many of our most experienced and highest earning members doing instrumental cues and instrumental tracks don't bother registering the copyrights for those with the Library of Congress because each of them um, in and of itself will not generate that much money. It's the aggregate income from many or all of them that brings in the big bucks eventually. Um, but I did say that if you're pitching a song, like, you know, a song that's potentially a hit for Olivia Rodrigo or Ariana Grande or Bruno Mars or whomever, um, register those things um, because those do have the potential to be big earning things and you want to be able to protect yourself by if you ever have to go to court on a copyright infringement case to say, here's the date of creation. Look, I've got a copyright registration. All right, we've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, Matt, Keith LeBrad says, Matt Vanderbilt, if playing my nose made me money, I'd dig it. <laughs> uh, by the way, I uh, was talking to Vanderbilt the other day, and he has invited me to come back to beautiful Nampa, Idaho, which is a suburb of Boise, or as they say in Idaho, Boise. It's funny, they pronounce it funny in their own state, but I guess they know what they're doing because they live there. So I am going to do that. At some point this summer, I'm going to fly to Boise. Matt's going to pick me up at the airport. I am going to do a live taxi TV. Um, Matt's got a, a bunch of people that he hangs out with on the regular. Uh, many of them have been to the road rally before. It's a little group, like, a, like the Mickey Mouse Club for 
composers and songwriters in beautiful Napa, Idaho. So I'm going to do a live episode with them in the audience, uh, and I really look forward to that. Last time I went to Boise, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. First of all, I love hanging out with Matt. He's hysterically funny. Um, we went out to a brand new Korean barbecue restaurant. It was really good. Um, can I come and we can go fly fishing for trout? Sure. Why not? Maybe we should have a get-together. Everybody can crash at Matt's place on the living room floor. <laughs> Andre, can you guys fly in and out of Canada now? Are the COVID restrictions lifted or are you still imprisoned up there? Um, Heidi Owen Straub said, did you just recently get married, Heidi? Because uh, you added Straub to your last name. If that's the case, congratulations on that. Michael, you are a plethora of information as usual, and your delivery is addictive. Thank you. Um, wow, I'm shocked to hear that. Thank you for the compliment. Uh, I didn't know that my delivery was addictive. I actually felt like I was a little off today, but, you know, Vanderbilt's going to sell tickets. I love it. Um One reason, Vincent Nicotina says, one reason instrumental composers don't register with the Libraries Congress is that we already have a pretty good, already have pretty good evidence that we wrote the tune first if it came to a lawsuit. Um, talk to a lawyer about that. Uh, I'm not so sure that, you know, for years people used to think that the poor man's copyright um, which should get you canceled now. Calling anybody poor or a man is enough to get you canceled in today's uh, society. But, uh, you know, that was mailing a copy of a, a cassette, maybe, um, in a lyric sheet to yourself. Uh, registered mail, return receipt requested, and not opening the envelope when you get it. That way you could show the judge in court, look, Your Honor, I sent this to myself in 19, March of 1982. Um, I actually had one really big music attorney, probably the most well-known. He's written one of the definitive books. Um, he said to me, it's better than nothing. I've had other music attorneys say to me, what the hell was he thinking telling you that? Um, poor man's copyright apparently means zip to a judge. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave that alone. Anyway, folks, my time is up. Um, I hope you got a lot out of today's show, and I, I want to thank all the guys. I want to thank, um, let's see, who did I have on the list where I can't find the post-it note anymore? The people that responded in short order, Keith LeBrant, Matt Vanderbow, Greg Carroza, who else? Paul Croteau. And last but not least, Mr. Craig Pilo. Thank you guys for taking the time to do this. Uh, you know, I can tell, especially some of you like Craig and Polly had to spend a good hour on that. So thank you. Um, I, I really hope that you found it beneficial. And, and thanks again to you guys who submitted for this. Don't forget, next week I am going to do a show called How to Write Money-Making Titles for Your Music. And if you have any questions um, about today's topic, and I have a feeling they're going to be a lot, go to the archive of this. Uh, go to Taxi's uh, YouTube page. Look under the subheading of live shows. It just says live, and you will find today's show. 
ask your questions in the comments and I'm sure that these guys, because they all participate in our forum, um, I'm sure that they would uh, gladly answer a couple of questions because that's the, the way these guys are. They're extremely generous with their time and their knowledge. Um, and that's that. Don't forget next week how to write money-making titles for your music. Thank you all so much. Have a great rest of your week. Adios. Bye-bye. I do like smashing that button.